0: Welcome to Sydney Ideas. This is the University of Sydney's talks program. My name is Fenella Kernabone. I'm the head of programming for Sydney Ideas and it is such a pleasure to be with you tonight and thank you to everybody who has joined us. Tonight, of course, we're going to be hearing from Professor Kate Crawford, University of Sydney alumna, an honorary professor right here at the university, and of course, one of the world's foremost scholars on the social and political implications of artificial intelligence. Now, before I continue proceedings, I would firstly like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which we meet, where we live and work and share ideas, wherever you happen to be. And I also acknowledge the Gadigal people of the EOR a nation because it's on their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built and as we share our own knowledge, our teaching, our learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So tonight... Ladies and gentlemen, it is such a pleasure to be in conversation with Kate Crawford. It is timed for the Australian launch of her new book, Atlas of AI, Power, Politics and the Planetary Costs of Artificial Intelligence, published by Yale University Press. Over her 20-year career, Kate's work has focused on understanding large-scale data systems, machine learning and AI in the wider contexts of history politics, labor, and the environment. She's a research professor of communication and STS at USC Annenberg, a senior principal researcher at MSR NYC, and the inaugural visiting chair for AI and justice at the Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris. Her book has been described as timely and urgent by nature, a fascinating read or fascinating history of data by the New Yorker and is one of the Financial Times top reads for 2021. Artificial intelligence or AI, it's seen as one of the great innovations of our time. It's making things simpler, it's easier, it's all in the, the cloud, simple. But hidden behind the buzz, ladies and gentlemen, Atlas of AI challenges us to see AI in a wider context as an extractive industry built with human labour and exploiting vast natural resources. So what does it take to make AI work and how does it centralise power? As Kate says, it's all about politics all the way down. Kate Crawford, hello.
1: Vanella, what a fantastic (laughs) introduction. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here and to be with Sydney Ideas.
0: Tell us a bit about why you wrote this book. Why do we need an atlas of AI and how do we actually map artificial intelligence?
1: Well, certainly I use the metaphor of the atlas because atlases are very unusual sorts of books. They allow you to look at different scales. You can look at the scale of a continent or zoom into a mountain range. And you can also look at the imprint of colonial empires over time. And I think that's a very useful way of thinking about artificial intelligence. We need to think about the way in which we have these great houses of AI, these sort of handful of companies that really dominate planetary Computation, And we need to look at the different scales in terms of how it's affecting everyday life. So in that sense, you know, an atlas is, is really encouraging us to, to look at this more global picture around what these systems do and, and what they might be costing us. In terms of literally how I did this, the sort of the way that I did this as a researcher was to really go to the places where AI is being made in the fullest sense, rather than perhaps a more traditional academic approach of, you know, reading papers and reflecting at arm's length. I sort of went to the mines where the minerals are being extracted to build large scale systems. I went inside Amazon fulfillment warehouses to see the experience of work and of course went to the labs where large-scale training data sets are being made so in that sense like, I sort of wanted to uh, really kind of put, put myself in the story to to understand personally what it really takes to make these systems work and, and frankly it really opened my eyes having done that on this for, for decades I think it, it still was an extraordinary eye-opener to to really be in those these locations and, and to understand it differently.
0: Tell me a bit more about how you kind of balanced the the need to take us on a journey through the course of this book, through those chapters, to give us the storytelling that we need to understand what's really going on when it comes to artificial intelligence uh, mixed with the archival research that runs throughout the course of this book. How did you go about that?
1: Well, I think you always need both. We need history to understand how we got to this place. So archives are a very important part of my practice. But again, I sort of, I start the book by going to the location. So I begin by sort of jumping in a van and driving out to the only working lithium mine in the United States, which is in Nevada, in this little town in the Clayton Valley, which has basically around 125 people living there. And this town was almost abandoned in 1917 after the gold and silver rushes that enriched San Francisco. But it wasn't until after the war that they realized that this little town of Silver Peak is right on top of this gigantic underground lake of lithium. And that lithium is essential for one reason, which is rechargeable batteries. And, of course, we have a few grams of lithium in things like iPhones, but you have many kilograms, over 60 kilograms are required to create a reusable battery for a Tesla car. So now we're in this race where there's actually a a real concern about running out of our current known supplies of lithium. So this substance, which was assumed to be just everywhere and then sort of hardly considered to be important and and very rarely recycled properly, has now become part of this crucial production of planetary computation and reminds us, you know, the enormous amount of minerals, as well as energy, as well as water that are needed to make. systems work at a time where we are really reaching the end point. I mean, there was a new study that came out from the University of Gothenburg in Germany that suggested that if we have best practices of using lithium and we recycle better, we might be reaching the end of our current limits around 2100. If we don't do that, we could be reaching a limit as soon as 2040. So we're in a very different moment in terms of thinking about the true costs of these systems. And certainly when I was writing this book, it was before the current semiconductor crisis. So I think in 2021, we have lots of evidence around why the true impacts of these systems are much bigger than normally talked about. You know, We we generally think of big tech as being a a green industry, but in fact, nothing could be further from the truth.
0: And this is exactly what the book um, outlines so clearly and in each chapter as well. So you you talked about, I mean, maybe just back to the lithium mines, what does that place look like? What does it smell like? What does it feel like? And as you say, if we don't find ways to recycle this lithium uh, effectively, we could be running out of it by 2040, which does spell the end of certain pieces of equipment that we all have come to rely on and love so, so much. So tell me a bit more about the environmental impact and the footprint of AI when it comes to these types of mines.
1: Well, I mean, these are extraordinary landscapes. I mean, there's there's sort of multiple places around the world where you get to see the sort of material imprint of really all of these systems required to build AI. It was, it was interesting going to the lithium mine. It's this gigantic desert plain and you see this sort of huge salt desert, but there are these big black pipes that are sort of snaking around the earth, extracting the lithium brine. And, you know, it's this quite extraordinary landscape. You know, the same time when you talk to the miners there, people really aren't sure how much longer that mine will work, how much more is, is possibly left. And if we look on the other side of the planet, if we go to Mongolia uh, in Batu, there is this gigantic black toxic lake, which is an entirely artificial lake that's been made from the basic just sort of huge amounts of waste produced by creating rare earth minerals. Um, again, rare earth, a core component of so many consumer AI devices and computational infrastructure. Yet the, again, lasting legacy of these types of production is is, is often hidden from view. And so I think in in many ways, we don't see the systems that are behind AI, be it from the perspective of natural resources or labor or data. So part of what I'm trying to do is is to bring those things back into focus so that we have a better sense of what these systems are really doing worldwide.
0: It's interesting. I'd love you to talk briefly, Kate, about an earlier work of yours that you're very well known for, um, and you can look this up online if you need to see more information about this. And it was uh, it was all about mapping the, the supply chain of consumer AI devices. Uh, and it was a project that you did with Vlad Yola, uh, Anatomy of an AI System, and it, it won the International Prize for Design of the Year in 2019. It's now in the permanent collection of MoMA. Uh, it's not in my home, which is deeply unfortunate, but that's okay because it's quite... It's- it's quite big. So tell me, tell me a bit about this particular work and how, how this new book in spe- specifically connects to this earlier work that you did of, of mapping the supply chains of consumer AI devices.
1: Well, in many ways, I think of anatomy of an AI system as the genesis of this book, Atlas of AI, because it it was the project that completely transformed my thinking. Um, Ultimately, it started back in 2016, I think, when I first met Vladan, and we were at a conference, actually, on voice-enabled AI systems. And we were thinking, look, do people really understand how something like an Alexa or a Siri really work? How would you draw it and map it for people? So we started drawing all of the forms of data extraction that allow you to sort of speak to an Amazon Echo and say, Alexa, what's the weather today? We knew how the data part worked, but then we thought, what happens if you open it up and you trace back to the beginning of every component in a single Amazon Echo? So we went back to discover what mines it was being produced in, how it was being smelted, how it was being shipped around the world, all of the logistics that it takes to to make a system like that. And then we also looked at the end of life at the e-waste tips where these, you know, alexas get thrown away generally in sort of less than five years. So it was sort of this extraordinary mapping process where we saw the sort of the deep time of extracting all of these minerals and energy to serve a Lit second of technological time for these devices that are just so easily discarded. So, doing that really opened my eyes and, and, and it made me realize that after sort of doing this gigantic map of a single AI device, I really wanted to expand that analysis to essentially study the entire AI industry.
0: And tell me a bit more about how this actually really transformed your thinking about artificial intelligence and then how it has in some ways transformed how, how we will think about it. So we're talking about a single device here, the Alexa. So by through using art and putting a humanist, humanistic sort of focus on it, how this then enables our understanding of, of AI and its impacts.
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I've been an academic for basically 20 years now, coming up on my my anniversary, and... It's certainly been interesting for me that I, you know, I spent a lot of my early years you know writing papers and writing books, and that is, I think, incredibly important work. It speaks to uh, a, an audience, but it's primarily an audience who's already interested, who's already thinking about these questions. It wasn't until I had the privilege of collaborating with artists like Vladan Joller and also Trevor Paglin and Heather Dewey-Hagborg and others – that I realized that there's actually ways in which we can show the way these systems work to a much bigger audience. And the reason why I think that's important is that AI systems already are having so much impact on our everyday lives, often in ways that are hidden, but sometimes in ways that we see. Uh, And and across across that sort of social structure, how do you start to have a more informed public debate about whether we want, say, facial recognition in our cities or whether we want AI emotion recognition being used in schools if people can't see how those systems work and what's at stake? So I think one of the things that's really motivated my work in recent years is how do we share this research with the widest possible group so that we can really start to have those debates? Because without those debates, we're not going to have the regulation we need. We're not going to be able to make the choices we need to make. And we're not going to be looking at the way in which these kinds of systems are actually producing really quite troubling changes at the level of our climate, but also in terms of labour rights and in terms of data protections. So it's, it's for me, it got to a point now where we really have to think about these issues together. Um, so in that sense, I think it's important to to bring in a much much wider group than than necessarily an academic paper might do.
0: Certainly. We've talked a bit about um, the sort of the extraction uh, already when it comes to lithium mine, but the, the book goes through sort of seven dif- different chapters. I think you, what's the, the term that you call uh, for this when it comes to the actual structure and the plan of your book? Because I find that quite interesting. Can you talk to me a bit about that?
1: Sure. I mean, in some ways the book is is... Structured like geological strata. It begins with the earth and then it moves through labor and data and classification and affect. And then how do states use these systems and ultimately ends up in outer space in the currently sort of private space race being run by AI billionaires like Bezos and Musk. Um, I sort of tend to think of this as as almost sort of the the full stack of AI. You know, we we tend to hear about full stack computing and we just, you know, think about the, the data channels. But the full stack of AI. really does involve so many human bodies sort of laboring to make these systems seem intelligent. It involves So many resources and and just vast amounts of data. So, in that sense, the book is is really trying to uh, allow people to sort of skip between these strata and to see how they're actually connected.
0: Mm. Let's go back a little bit, and I want to talk about labour in a moment and ethics as well. But AI itself is something we've been we've been unpacking it. We know what's involved. We've talked about the lithium mines, but when we think about ai for many of us it's it's inexplicable as we said earlier it's in, it's in the cloud it's a thing it's it doesn't have any impact maybe if i could get you to define how you see artificial intelligence and how does that in some way differ from what everybody else might necessarily think of so give us your definition of it kate
1: Sure. Well, I mean, the the traditional definition of artificial intelligence, which is certainly uh, most commonly used in technical communities, is really looking at a series of approaches, which right now, the most popular ones are called machine learning. And it includes various types of learning from deep learning to reinforcement learning. But this is a series of technical approaches and algorithms that are used effectively to do large scale statistical analysis and pattern recognition and prediction. That's one way of thinking about AI. But there's another way Is to say, what are the sort of social practices that define these systems? Where does the data come from? What sorts of histories does that data bring along with it? And then more broadly, what are the infrastructures that these, that these algorithms run on? And who owns those infrastructures? So in many ways, we could look at this from a technical perspective, but also a social and infrastructural perspective. And then also geopolitically, in terms of how these systems are actually producing significant change at the level of global power. So certainly what I tend to do in the way that I define systems is that we really need to go beyond this very narrow technical approach to look at everything from the rooms where these systems get designed, who decides who will be served by these systems and who might be harmed. And ultimately, how do these systems feed into existing structures of power, be that Big business be that policing or the military
0: so you call it an uh, sort of an ecosystem that's a way of kind of thinking about it is that a fair a fair one
1: I think that is a fair one. And and, and certainly, you know, that that ecosystem is changing very rapidly and the types of techniques being used in the AI industry are changing all the time. But these these broader questions around the social and political structures, I think, are, are much more consistent and dominant. And so that's part of what I try to do in this book is to look really closely at how AI systems are designed to serve very specific sorts of interested parties.
0: Let's talk a bit about labour. As you say, there's there's a number of elements that go into the construction of artificial intelligence. When you talk about this through the Atlas of AI, but you do you do write about many different forms of labour that are involved in the making of AI, and you've touched on this before, and 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 that includes miners, uh, content moderators, uh, Amazon warehouse workers, even engineers in Silicon Valley. So. All of these uh, labor forces are playing into the construction of artificial intelligence, but how is the experience of work, in your view, changing now in, in relation to increased surveillance and algorithmic management systems?
1: Look, it's a great question because so often when we think about, you know, what does the future of work look like? You know, we're told these stories about, you know, robots and humans collaborating together in these shared environments. And, you know, again, Amazon is is so often used as the symbol of what that might look like. Um, but it was by going inside a fulfilment centre, and it is, again, such, a, such an ironic term, a fulfilment centre. You have to think about whose desires are being fulfilled by these systems. Because when you actually see what the working experience is like, it's extremely harsh. Of course, i would read many stories about that, but it was was something about really seeing it for myself and seeing people under huge amounts of physical strain. Uh, Again, you'd see lots of bandages and sort of support garments. Um, You'd also see sort of just the, the stress of having these screens that would be really tracking what's called the rate, which is the ability for a worker to pick items off the shelves and get them packed in time. And if they don't make that rate, they run the risk of getting penalized and possibly fired. Um, And it is an extremely difficult environment. Even Jeff Bezos in his recent letter to shareholders admitted that they have to do much better with how they're going to be treating workers. But rather than supporting unions, what they've decided to do is to further surveil workers by tracking them at the level of the muscles and ligaments to see how long they're spending on task to make sure that literally the kind of internal workings of the bodies are being spread through the factory. Now, that sounds very much to me like, again, the visions of labor that we had from Taylor and Ford. You can go back even to Charles Babbage, who who believed that we needed to create perfect factories that would work like gleaming computational systems. Um, so I'm really interested in looking at the labor history there. But the other thing that's important, Fenella, is is that these sorts of systems aren't just, you know, in factory contexts. They're also in so many workplaces. And this is particularly true in the context of the pandemic, where many of us right now are you know, on Zoom calls like this one. Uh, and many workers are being tracked from, you know, how efficiently they're, you know, answering their emails and, and taking their meetings. They're being compared to their colleagues in terms of who's making more sales or being a sort of more efficient worker. And, and some systems, of course, are even tracking the micro expressions in people's faces to assess whether they are happy, sad, or engaged, or you know, the you know the ideal employee. So this type of what's called bossware or algorithmic management is being spread throughout industries around the world right now, and I find it incredibly concerning for the reason that it again increases this power asymmetry between employers and employees. And and we see those power asymmetries sort of being sort of pushed out in so many domains where, again, AI systems so frequently give more power to the already powerful.
0: Mm, for sure. Uh, this goes back, to some of the talk, things you've just been talking about in terms of facial recognition goes back to some very sort of old data collection practices, including, you talk about this in the book quite extensively about the data collection, uh, facial recognition of Paul Ekman. So tell me a little bit about those types of things that are feeding into our understanding of how AI is actually being created and used today. And it still persists, it perpetuates
1: yeah I mean one of the it's, it's it's a really interesting story actually so the idea of emotion recognition AI is that you could look at a video of somebody's face and you could tell what their true inner state was based on nothing more than the muscle movements in their face and this idea uh, actually can be traced back to a psychologist called Paul Ekman who in the 1960s and 70s was developing in this idea that there were Six essentially universal emotions that we all feel, regardless of culture or context, and they can be deduced from the face. And then, again, early AI researchers wanted to see if computers could do this, if they could, again, trace those muscle movements and make predictions about your internal states. What's troubling about this, of course, is that even back when Ekman was first developing these theories, anthropologists like Margaret Mead and many others said that this was an incredibly problematic idea. It simply wasn't scientific. And it, it removed all of the interesting issues around context and culture that, that we react differently depending who we're talking to. That just because you're smiling doesn't mean you're happy. And of course, you know, Fenella, any of us who've ever worked in a cafe know that that is absolutely not the case. What's hidden um, behind that face? Right right yes right and and yet this this deeply problematic idea of you know six universal emotions has been built into ai systems for hiring in in schools in criminal justice systems so what i did was really trace the history of that idea and how problematic it is from a scientific perspective and how many decades we've been questioning this idea and yet it's being treated as objective fact so that's just one example of how particular i think quite often pseudo scientific ideas get built into our technical infrastructures
0: for sure um i wonder if i could go off track a little bit but there's a story that you talk about in the book about the mechanical turk which i thought would be quite interesting to see how that um, might play in which is all about the sort of the mystery or the magic i guess of ai so can you tell me a bit about that story
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because the Mechanical Turk was first designed in the 1700s and it was the toast of Europe. I mean, the idea of the Mechanical Turk was that it was almost a robotic looking man with a turban who could defeat any human chess player. But it was a trick because, of course, there was a person hiding within the box who was then actually directing the motions of, of the automaton. Then, of course, we go forward 250 years and Jeff Bezos decides to name his uh, his system for remote work, a remote dispersed work platform around the world, artificial artificial intelligence, as you call it, uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk. So these ideas from history around how again, sort of tricks to hide labor are now being revived again uh, in AI systems, often, you know, in ways that I think are surprisingly unironic. Like, you know, the fact that Bezos is saying that with a straight face always sort of strikes me as somewhat odd. Um, but yes, I, I kind of one of the things I think is important is looking at these, these longer histories behind ideas of automation that I think are still, you know, in some ways haunting the systems we have today.
0: Absolutely. Um, if if I may, Kate, can we get into some issues now of bias uh, and particularly, and you touched on this a little bit already, but racial and gender classification. Through, throughout the book, something that uh, really haunts the book historically is eugenics um, and the movement there, so craniometry and phrenology and how this is done in contemporary AI with criminal detection and emotion recognition. So maybe just sort of give us a bit of a sense of what, what you're talking about here in this book and then maybe talk a bit more about the histories of these sort of pseudoscience that we've touched on a little bit already, scientific racism as such.
1: Well, it's it's a very important part of, I think, understanding how we've got to this point in history where we have AI systems that claim to be able to tell your internal state, that will try to predict if you will be a criminal, that try to predict your sexuality. These are all systems that have been published about just in recent years. Um, and certainly I think we can trace those ideas back to phrenology, to craniometry, and to scientific racism. And it really troubles me that one of the sort of very common, in fact, it's not even remarked upon enough in the AI sector, one of the very common uh Approaches is really to predict people's race and gender. And when I spent time sort of studying the systems that do this, seeing the classificatory logics underneath them is absolutely shocking. Again, often premised on ideas of binary gender, which, you know, quite frankly, so profoundly problematic, I don't even know why they're still being coded for. Some use the idea of four races, which again, takes us back in time to, you know, the sorts of systems that were being used in apartheid South Africa. Um, Some are using really sort of labels to classify people's character and personality and worth. Uh, and this is something that, um, for me, certainly the, the breakthrough project in understanding this better was um, a collaboration I did with the artist Trevor Paglen called Excavating AI. And to do this project, we spent over two years looking at the training data that's used to allow AI systems to actually interpret the world. So in order to have an AI system actually be able to make predictions, it needs to have an enormous amount of training data so that, say, for example, it's predicting whether an image is a cat or a dog. You feed it thousands, sometimes millions of images of cats and dogs so it can begin to detect what an image would be. Now, when you start applying that to humans, you start to see some really disturbing classifications. And we looked at possibly one of the most well-known training data sets called ImageNet, which is really, uh, in many ways, responsible for uh, so much of the success and breakthroughs we've had in computer vision, specifically object recognition. Yet when it's defining people as objects, you start to see some really troubling things. You start to see people sort of being defined as a bad person or a kleptomaniac or an alcoholic, or as we kept looking at these categories, I mean, there are terms that, again, I'm not going to be able to say here um, because they're unrepeatable, but truly racist and misogynist slurs. And again, this was a training data set that's been used widely. That was openly accessible on the internet for over a decade and remarkably just left in that state as though this was an okay way to be classifying humans. Again, this is not that unusual. There are many examples of this in terms of that training data layer and the way in which it's been used, I think it almost does a sort of an afterthought in terms of how we train technical systems. So certainly one of the things that we need to do much more is to bring a critical lens to how AI systems are trained to see the world, to make interpretations, and I think to be far more careful about the way in which they're allowed to play a role in so many sensitive social institutions.
0: Mm. When, when these kind of uh, these practices uh, perpetuate in AI, uh, as you were just talking about before, this idea from ImageNet, et cetera, uh, the, so I suppose the idea is that you could just clean it up, for example, just get rid of it and fix it, and therefore it can go away. That That kind of idea in itself, that's a huge problem that actually perpetuates today, isn't it?
1: It's certainly one of the most common approaches is that when these issues of bias and AI systems have been pointed out, and they've been pointed out by many scholars for many years, we can think of the work of Joy Bull and Winnie and Timnit Gebru, uh, we, there, there's a long list now of people who've done you know, extraordinary work pointing out that we have systems that are profoundly biased in terms of race, gender, and many other vectors as well. But the response from tech companies has mo- most commonly been, "Let's remediate bias. Say, if we have a facial recognition system that doesn't recognize people with darker skin tones, let's just increase the amount of pictures that we have of people so with more darker more data. Precisely, just super collect data. And we, you know, we had a case, of course, after um, Joy and Timnit's study was published, saying that, you know, Google's system, for example, among many others, wasn't able to recognize people with darker skin tones. Google reportedly then went out and tried to pay homeless people in L.A. um, to get face scams from them without telling them what this data was going to be used for. Again, I, I don't think this is a way of improving these systems or making them more just and fair if we look at this wider context of how they're being made and who's being impacted. So certainly I think this idea of bias remediation, while it's an important step, is is absolutely not sufficient. We have to think at this much bigger question of how is the system built? You know, who benefits from it and who is harmed? And until we have much more, I think, rigorous systems for accountability, but also building in much stronger guardrails around how these systems work once they're deployed, we're going to keep seeing these problems
0: recur. Mm, This is why this book and what you're talking about is so important, because it does start to unpack and unravel so that we can actually see this and it becomes so much clearer. Um, We're talking, of course, to Kate Crawford and what a delight it is about her book, Atlas of AI. Um, It is is an extraordinary book, but one one of the sort of the wonderful um, surprises about the book, Kate, is, is just how immersed in historical methodologies it is, uh, you know, how you look at histories and the prehistories. And you've talked a bit about this, of course, already, but um, of these hyper contemporary systems. So let's go back a bit. How can you, or can you say where uh, and when AI begins? Is it possible? Where did it take us back a bit.
1: Well, you know, the the most commonly told story about AI is that it begins with the Dartmouth Conference in 1956. And that was certainly a sort of a a turning point when we saw a series of scientists get together and say, we want to create computational systems that can be intelligent and can make intelligent decisions. And in in some ways, I think there was a, a problem even then, early on, in this idea that idea of computers being akin to human minds it's in some ways like a sort of Cartesian dualism, you know, the old mind-body split that we could create a a mind in a jar without thinking about the ways in which we are embodied and relational and and we think in relation to the people and contexts around us and and our wider environment and ecology so I think there already we had this trap in the the very term, artificial intelligence, I think, you know certainly one of the, the, the points that I believe deeply, which is that it's, it is neither artificial nor intelligent. It is profoundly material. And, and in no way are we creating systems that are autonomous or able to make any kind of determinations without extensive amounts of data and, and predetermined rules and rewards. So even there, I think at that moment, um, we can start to say at the sort of birth of the official term, artificial intelligence, um, we had some problems emerging. But you can go much further back. And that's that's certainly one of the things... Um, that I like to do as a researcher is to think of the much deeper sort of historical threads that are traced through that allow systems like this to be constructed. And sometimes that means going back to, uh, again, people who devised ideas of, of statistics, like Francis Galton, who's also the father of eugenics, who was trying to think about how do you create sort of composite images of you know, the criminal or the prostitute? These ideas of, again, reading from the fact Face what somebody's character would be. This is an idea which, again, repeats in our technical systems today. And there are also historical trajectories around how do we sort of classify populations? This is something that you know, states have done for centuries. But again, is the sort of mechanism of power that is now being devolved into AI systems. So I think we have to take this, this you know, sort of 500-year view to really understand the types of AI systems we have today and, again, where they might be in fact i think centralizing power and threatening sort of some of the traditional tenets of democracies
0: Mm, so politics all the way down as you like to say for sure Um, you end the book uh, with a, a very surprising kind of discussion. Uh, I think you call it the coda chapter. Is that is that correct? And I, I thought I might, um, if I if I could, scan it briefly with my eyeballs, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So you you cut to a video um, of of Jeff Bezos talking. Basically, you end with, sort of with a discussion about the modern day space race between Bezos and Musk. So, uh, and, and I guess the, the the question is, what can we learn about the future and how it's being imagined when What we discover is all the tech billionaires want to leave the planet. If I can try and find this, here we go, cut to Bezos in a control room during a launch, adjusting his headset. His voiceover continues, this is the most important work I'm doing. It's a simple argument. This is the best planet and so we face a choice. As we move forward, we're going to have to decide whether we want a civilization of stasis, ETC. Do we have to cap cap the population? Will we have to cap energy usage per capita? Or can we fix that problem by moving out into space? So how can we imagine a future, Kate, when all our billionaires just want to leave and extract out there? Can't do it here anymore, so go there. Talk to me.
1: Well, I'm not sure if you saw Fenella, but um, one of the most popular petitions on change.org this week is a petition to not let Jeff Bezos... Allowed to land back on Earth when he goes <laughs> to space later this month, um, which I thought was quite amusing. I think it has almost 150,000 signatures at this point. Um, but you can see why people are concerned. And, and certainly, um, when I was researching this book, I was really fascinated with the fact that Jeff Bezos is very passionately committed to uh, space travel and has created this company, Blue Origin, to not just begin to create reusable rockets, but with this much more ambitious vision of actually moving people into space, living on sort of very large-scale sort of satellites and keeping the Earth as a very nice place to visit, in his words, presumably for the people who can afford it, who aren't working in the space mines and uh, living in the space colonies. But Mm. this, to me, is, is... is interesting for two reasons. One is that I think it tells us something very troubling about this addiction to growth that is certainly there in in, in that quote uh, from Jeff Bezos that you just read out. This idea that rather than thinking about what zero growth would look like or changing the way we live, we just have to move the extractive frontier a little further out. We have to treat space as, as the new sort of mining material and certainly that is the case for for many of the big tech billionaires this is this is the new you know privatized moment But it doesn't come from a vision of what is best for everybody. It's it's a vision of what's best for them. And you can really see it in the documents that they produce. And to me, this this kind of corporate imaginary of of capture and extraction is is really what's behind so much of big tech right now. I mean, in the book, I, I describe AI as the new extractive industry of the 21st century. And I think you really see that logic taken to its extreme in the private space race where it really is about trying to capture as many minerals as possible to get to places first and then to claim it for themselves and it's interesting actually um there used to be, uh, certainly the, the Outer Space Treaty in the 1960s was, was written in the US to really concretize the idea that space was a, a public commons. It was for everybody. And then in 2015, we saw both Bezos and Musk's respective companies lobby the Obama administration to allow them to extract minerals and to profit from space. So ever since then, the race has been on. And it's, again, we're losing yet another common We're seeing another type of enclosure, just as we have done with, you know, so many kinds of data sets on the Internet and archives, which have just become the raw material for AI. We're now seeing this sort of play out in outer space
0: as well. Maybe we should all sign that petition. I I don't know whether that's a good idea or not, potentially. Um, Kate, it's been so delightful to speak with you uh, for your Sydney launch for Atlas of AI. But if you were to write the next volume of your book on how to govern AI, um, what would it say? Um, Is there anything that needs to to be done uh, beyond ethics principles and self-regulation or can we do better? So what do you think?
1: I think we can. We've certainly seen over the last couple of years a profusion of ethics statements and principles and even a Hippocratic Oath for AI, which I saw was was published this week. In all of these sort of highfalutin documents, what we lack is any type of mechanism to tie this to accountability so you can have you know the big tech companies releasing their ethical principles but how do we make sure that anyone is actually following those or it has any impact on the world at large and we've had much evidence to show that it's not working so indeed i think we have to look to Strong regulation. I've been really heartened to see the EU uh, release the first ever sort of omnibus regulation for AI. Uh, we've got a long way to go in the US, and we're we're starting to see some really interesting moves in Australia. In fact, uh, Ed Santel, the Human Rights Commissioner in Australia, released a, port, a report specifically looking at how can we address the human rights challenges presented by artificial intelligence. So I'm you know I'm really optimistic that we moving into an era of regulation. The trick will be making sure that that regulation actually works and isn't riddled with loopholes. I'm also really optimistic to see the number of organizations that are coming together around this issue. So the fact that issues of climate justice and labor rights and data protections have often been issues that have been seen as very separate, pursued by very different sorts of organizations. We're starting to see real collaboration now around this question of how AI can actually be curtailed in such a way that it can be of benefit to all and not the few. So those sorts of movements, I think, are certainly a a very positive change. And I think also this idea of a politics of refusal, that people are saying no, to some kinds of technology. We've seen, for example, bans on facial recognition in places like Portland, in Oakland, in Somerville, uh, and again, growing, uh, growing calls for real restrictions across the EU as well. That to me is, again, a moment where we're starting to see some scepticism and I think some realism about the fact that, you know, technological determinism isn't the way that we should be living. We shouldn't allow these systems to always be the central actors in terms of what our lives and what broader sort of political structures should
0: look like. Certainly. Um, Kate Crawford, of course, uh, is speaking with us, talking about her book, Atlas of AI. And thank you to your questions that you've been sending through so far. Um, I'm going to get to just a couple of them before we wrap up before uh, seven o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So the first one, uh, Kate, is from Chris uh, Jurati. uh, And it, it is, what is the impact of AI on energy resources? Does AI use more power than is justifiable? How do we get to this place?
1: Well, that's a that's a really good question, and there've been some excellent papers that have been published recently. I'm thinking of the work of Emma Strubell, who wrote a breakthrough paper in 2019 where she looked at how much energy it takes to train a single natural language processing model. Um, and in that study, it was shown that it was I think it was over 660,000 pounds of carbon dioxide, or the equivalent of around 125 round trips between Beijing and New York. So that's that's one model and it doesn't even come close to the scale of the models that are being created at, say, Facebook or Google. So indeed, you know, we we have a moment now where we're starting to see a huge amount of energy being used to train AI systems. It's also happening at the same moment in history where there's a trend towards ever larger models. We've got large language models like GPT-3, which is a system that attempts to essentially create human-like text but uses a vast amount of data and a vast amount of energy. So there's a push ultimately to AI supercomputing right at the same time in history where the planet is already teetering on a climate, very serious climate collapse, depending where you are and how you're experiencing it. So in this sense, your, your question points to one of my deepest concerns, which is how can we start to move away from these extremely energy-intensive and compute-heavy approaches, because otherwise these systems simply cost far more than they actually
0: deliver. Mm, okay. A question's come through from George Margellis, uh, and it's towards healthcare. So AI in medicine is getting a lot of press, in your opinion. Is it close to becoming a viable tool for clinicians, and will it ever replace clinicians?
1: Well, certainly there's a lot that we would like to see AI do in the medical space that could be profoundly helpful and certainly in terms of designing drugs, looking at vaccines, very timely moment, we can think about the roles of machine learning there. But it becomes much trickier when we look at the way in which AI is being used in direct doctor-patient relationships. A colleague of mine, Rich Caruana, wrote this fantastic paper called Friends Don't Let Friends Use Black Box Models, where he basically looked at the way in which AI systems were being used to predict whether somebody would get pneumonia. And this was, you know, to be used in hospitals. And his deep learning model was remarkably effective apart from one issue, which is that it would always recommend that people with asthma should just be told to leave the hospital altogether. That's, of course, like... The last thing you want it to be recommending. But we can think about why, because the data it was trained on showed that in many cases, people with asthma had really good treatment. And why was that? It was because they were put immediately into the most of high level of care. So they had really good responses. So it might look on the data that, oh, these are patients who always do well, so send them out of a hospital. It was such an important breakthrough paper because it reminded us that AI systems are only as good as the data they're trained on. And, of course, medical data has a profoundly skewed history in terms of the fact that most commonly, you know, medical tests are done on white populations. It has, you know, again, predominantly male populations. We've had so many problems with the skews that we have in the data that AI systems are trained on. So, yet again, I think these are great questions, but it reminds us that we need to have a higher threshold of care and caution in terms of how we use these systems rather than just designing them and deploying them on millions of people at once, which is the current state of the art.
0: A question, uh, Kate, for you from Deborah Prospero, and thank you to everybody who's sending in your questions. We'll get to a few more. Um, Kate, you write about uh, Bezos and von Braun in your book. Is there an inherent connection between the alt-right, white supremacy, and contemporary space colonialism?
1: I love this question. It's it extremely. Um, it's an extremely timely question, of course, because in the U.S. Uh, there have there've been some recent reports that the CEO of a surveillance firm called Banjo was found to have connections to the Dixie Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, so an, an actual white supremacist. Um, and also Clearview AI, the company that has um, the largest training data set of all of our faces. It's got around 3 billion images. It's currently being used in, in many policing applications founded by an Australian. Um, that Australian, uh, Tom Thatt, was affiliated with right-wing extremists, including, you know, writers from Breitbart, uh, people behind the Pizzagate conspiracy. Um, you know, it, it really kind of is chilling to start to realise the way in which sort of the far right have actually got a very clear stronghold within startups and within tech generally. In fact, uh, the academic Sarah Myers-West wrote a piece um, called AI in the Far Right, A History We Can't Ignore, really pointing to the fact that there is a sort of deep connection within some of these organizations to tools being used in immigration, um, tools that are being used to sort of try and track and remove immigrants from the US, and also in predictive policing. So it's an incredibly important question and one that I think we need a lot of investigative journalists and research into, but you do see some of that that ideology in this contemporary private space race, this idea that, you know, uh, a sort of a very Ayn Randian vision, um, which is not a coincidence. You know, we know that Elon Musk has cited Ayn Rand as a a big influence, as has Peter Thiel. You know, this idea of uh, sort of singular success uh, has become that libertarian vision I think is very much built into Silicon Valley culture.
0: Um, a question, there's actually a couple of questions about um, sort of AI and children. So, you know, we're all at home at the moment, particularly if you're in New South Wales, and, and lots of respect and love to everybody. Um, but Babita Tiwari um, has asked this question, Kate, is it worth introducing AI concepts to children from the age of six and onwards?
1: Well, you know, I, I love that this is a very open question because we can ask what concepts should be introduced into to. And certainly from the age of six, I think, you know, children are already exposed to so many AI systems that are you know, part of their their toys. We have you know Barbies that are actually recording children's voices um, and speaking back to them. We have obviously you know so many iPad games that are trying to harvest and extract data from children. Now, in theory, we should have you know stronger legal protections than we do, um, but certainly giving children the ability to ask questions back of these systems, to be a little bit, I think, cautious around how much data we share. And I think in many ways to to just remember that they have a role too in the world and that ultimately, you know, these systems don't get to decide how they're going to live. It's actually really important, I think, to give kids the ability to understand that they can really create the world in different ways and it doesn't have to revolve around technology. So perhaps that's not the answer you're looking for. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and advocate that all kids need to learn how to code. I I don't think that's the solution. Instead, I think we actually need to to teach kids that, you know, we we need a generation of people who are going to innovate in different ways in terms of thinking about the social implications of what we build, in in terms of the legislation and policy that we have, and in terms of how we're going to address these these major sort of parallel crises that we currently face. So it's a, I think it's a much bigger challenge that we should be preparing our six-year-olds for.
0: Absolutely. A um, question, though, has come in from Martin, which I thought might be a quite a good one for us to, to wrap up on, Kate. Um, the book is brilliant and disturbing. How can we do better in the light of the huge and growing power and momentum of a few small players?
1: Well, that is the biggest question of all. So thank you for giving us that question, Martin. And I love that we've got so many questions in the chat that we're just not going to get to today. But I just want to thank you all for, for these really interesting and provocative notes. And, and, and also, of course, the multiple references to robo-debt, the fact that we've already started to see how these systems are going wrong, which I think brings us, brings us to your question and, and how we might actually begin to contend with with the system that we currently have. My biggest concern is that we've had, certainly over the last 15 years, the growth of a sector that has been barely regulated, barely taxed, and really allowed to have its run with the world. Uh, The idea of move fast and break things that was indeed, you know, the the motto of early Facebook, I think has become certainly the ideology of, of big tech. And we can see, certainly in terms of the richest companies on earth We're really looking at at technology companies that were started just in the last 20 years. So it's an extraordinary shift. And in many ways, we can see how large tech companies are taking on some of the roles that we used to associate with states, you know, with nation states. They have extraordinary power, in many cases, exceeding the power of nation states. So we have a question now, which is, what are we going to do? And certainly with the recent experience of what happened with Facebook and its negotiations with the Australian government, where we saw news feeds switched off across the country and we saw Australia isolated in terms of its ability to share national news with an international audience. I think we saw a moment of sort of the iron fist being removed from the velvet glove, that we could see that technology companies are quite happy to play very tough politics with the infrastructures that they own. So we have to think about what kinds of solutions we're going to come up with that in some cases need to be global in structure. It's going to be very difficult solving how we govern large-scale AI and big tech on a purely state-by-state basis. And so one of the things that we face, and I think it's it's unfortunately coming at a time in history where our international governing bodies are at a very moment of, of, uh, of I would say, sort of profound weakness having been undercut. Um, by many people, including the Trump administration. But this is precisely the moment where we need international governance. And I'm heartened to see that there are some slow growing initiatives in that space. But we're going to need to do a lot more if we're going to contend with just how much power is currently held by this specific
0: sector. Absolutely. So, to find out more about it, of course, you can actually read the book and read a lot of uh, Kate's articles. And we will put some reading lists up on the Sydney Ideas website. Kate, it's been such a delight to talk with you. Thank you, Kate Crawford. I appreciate it. And this is Sydney Ideas at the University of Sydney, our talks program. My name is Fenella Kernerbone.